0: Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to the book of James. James chapter 1 and uh, verses 26 and 27 will be the text that we'll be looking at today. James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. James is coming now to the main subject or what we would say the main topic or theme of his epistle. And that, of course, is true religion or as it's used here in verse 27, pure religion. And he wants his readers here to be assured that the religion that they do possess is the true religion based upon the principles of a renewed heart and obedience to the word of God. That is the the law of liberty, as it's called in the verses preceding. As we saw last week, it is the hearer and the doer of God's Word who is truly blessed. It's not just those who soak it all in and then they go out and never obey, but it is those who soak it in and as well seek to be obedient to the Word of God. Those who are blessed are those who build, as you saw, as we saw from uh, the Lord's words, they build their foundation of their house upon the hearing and the doing of the Word of God. And Jesus said that is a wise man who does so. But he also says it's a foolish man who will build his house upon the sand, the foundation of just hearing the sayings of the Lord. Or as James puts it here in this particular chapter, it's the man who goes to the mirror and he looks and then he turns away and doesn't become obedient to the things that he knows to do. And unfortunately, in the truest way of which presenting that, many, and I say the word many because we do know the scripture says, many are on the broad road that leadeth to destruction. The Lord himself says that. But going on, many, though, are building their houses or they are fixing that structure of their building on the hearing of God's word only and not doing isn't that a sad place to be or to put it as James does they are the ones who are only hearers and they are not doers and thus they are deceiving themselves now this is nothing new The Lord spoke of it, obviously, in the account there on the Sermon on the Mount, that there would be those who would build their houses upon a good foundation. And, of course, there will be those who will build their foundation upon a uh, a sandy thing. And James here reminds us there are those who, of course, who are only hearers only in that sense. So, this is nothing new. When we come some 2,000 years into the future... Or as we think back over church history in the last 2,000 years, this is nothing new, is it? That there will be many who are just simply hearers of the word, and they are not doers. There are many in this case who are, we have to say, as the scripture does, and that gives us the authority to speak in this manner, who are deceived. And there are many then who possess nothing but, as we're going to read this morning, a vain religion. That's the many. Now, he may seem to himself, and that's the connotation here in verse thirty twenty six. It's not so much to others that this text is in reference to that he seems to be religious, but it's someone himself who seems, who thinks, who in his own heart has convinced himself that he's a religious man. But in reality, his religion is vain. Now, the children, the word there, vain, when he says, uh, this man's religion is vain, it means it's worthless. It means it's vain. It's empty. It will do him no good. And so this morning, I'm going to attempt to open up verses 26 and 27 in your hearing. And in doing so, I want us to only see two main points. Now, we're going to subdivide all that, but there's just two main points to my opening up the doctrine in verse 26 and 27. The first is this. We see the example in verse 26 of vain and empty religion. James sets forth for us the example or an example, not the only example, but just an example of vain and empty religion. The second thing is the nature of pure religion. The nature of pure religion. So these are the two things I want us to see this morning. I want us to think about I want us to examine our souls in light of. So let's look at verse 26. He says here, If any man among you seem to be religious, and brighteth not his his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So James sets forth unto us here an example of a vain, empty religion. And here James plays the uh, searching preacher or the searching pastor towards his readers. He's not accusing of anyone at this point that their religion is vain, is he? He doesn't say here in verse 26, your religion is vain. He doesn't say that. Rather, he gives this interjection here, if any man among you seem to be religious. He puts the if clause there. He's not accusing, but he merely is just seeking out here the possibility may exist that there is men or a man among you who seems to be religious. And so here then he speaks to the conscience. And that's what I hope I am doing this morning. I'm speaking to your conscience. I'm trying to drive the point home here that if any man Among you seem to be religious. And you show forth the example of that. Let me assure you today, your religion is vain. So we see here James is in a very pastoral way seeking to grip the conscience, to grip the hearts regarding something of the utmost importance to churchgoers. Not the world on the outside. He's not preaching this to the mass of unconverted people who make no notion of Christianity at all. He's not speaking to those who go on in their life without any thought of God at all, who make no profession. In reality, he's talking to church folks here. He's talking to people like you and me. And he puts this question out, so to speak. He makes this prominent in our thinking. If any man among you. So let's apply it that way this morning. Let's think of ourselves in this light. If any of us seem to be religious, we better be careful. Now notice, he uses the word religion, religious, meaning the same thing, religious or religion, verse 26, also in verse 27, pure religion. Now religion, as you know, the term has become a very derogatory term, but it doesn't have to be. We can use it in the biblical sense, and it's a good thing. The word used by Paul here, or excuse me, James here, as well as Paul, has the idea or the meaning of worship or a reverence or a service in relationship to God. So that's a good thing. We ought to be worshipers of God. We ought to reverence God and we ought to serve Him. And that's just what the word there means. So it's no nasty word. I'm not religious. I'm a Christian. Well, you better have true religion. You better have pure religion or you're not a Christian. So away with that kind of talk and idea. If we want to get back to the Scriptures, and again, I'm not saying there aren't people who misuse the word and they can misuse it in the right way. That's fine. I'm just saying, I'm taking it as James is presenting here, it's okay. As long as your religion is not vain. As long as your service to God is real. As long as your worship is the true thing, then it's a good thing. And this worship as he uses it here in verse 26, again the word religion, which has the connotation of worship or reverence or service, is either through internal ways, that is by the heart, or it can mean or be defined through those external things or means, that is, the outward forms of worship. For instance, in the Jews' religion, they had all, if you go back to the law, you see all those things that they were to accomplish uh, underneath the old covenant. Those would be considered religious things, and they were a way in which God was to be approached. It was dictated by God, so it was lawful means. Or you can look at it in another way, and that is, in the sense that it is internal. Dealing with the heart, you know, the Jews, they were drawn nigh unto God, but their heart was far from them, he said. So there's a reality in that. Several of the commentators just argue here that the word, uh, that James is just simply using the word and speaking of it in an outward form. Uh, so, by the time the New Covenant comes, that is through the means of preaching, through prayer, through uh, the, the, the ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism. That's what they said they would be speaking of here. Well, either way, whether he's talking about the true religion that it comes from the heart, or as it's filtered out into our daily walk as we seek to worship Him, either way, the force is still the same. Either it's true religion, it's true Worship that is acceptable to God or it's not. And James's point of reference here, he's asking us, in effect, which do you have? Do you have a vain religion? Do you have a vain worship? Are you serving God and it's worthless? And remember, because there are so many deceived in this matter, it's a good thing to wonder this, isn't it? And we're not somehow doubting our salvation and throwing mud upon the the atoning work of Christ to examine our hearts in these matters. Because that's exactly what we're told to do in other places of Scripture. But brother, wouldn't wouldn't you want to know whether our religion is true or not? Whether our worship is acceptable to God or not? Woe be the man who waits to the last day and then it finally is here and he never wondered in a biblical fashion whether he was saved or not. Whether his religion was true or not. We say, well, how can I detect this? I'm glad you asked because this is what James gives us here. Notice this. He gives us an example of what is uh, showing us what is vain religion. He gives it here. Notice, if any a man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue. So the example, not the only example, but the example that James used. He could have went to 1 John and began to pull out all the marks of grace as well. And we'll show you something here. There's a little bit of that. That's not what James is trying to say. Well, there aren't other things, but he's using something here in particular. And he tells us what? If you don't bridle your tongue, your religion is vain. Now, I don't think James here just pulled something out of the air. Oh, I know. I'll pick this one. No, I think he was probably dealing with something that was a real issue among his hearers. An unbridled tongue. Now, note, if any man, whether he be young or whether he be old, whether he's in a place of authority or no, It is any man, any person. So, he's to look to himself in this matter. Truly, we may take this and look over at someone and say, Aha! Yes, so and so. Are you listening this morning? But if you did that, you'd be guilty of verse 23 and 24. You'd be like the man who is a hearer of the word and not a doer. He's like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. You remember the fellow next to you or the fellow in front of you or the fellow behind you. But you don't remember yourself. See, that's the danger of this. This is the danger of taking marks of grace. Rather than applying them to ourselves, we apply them to our neighbor. Yeah, that person's not saved. Blah, 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 blah. And that's true. You can. There is a reality to that. First John tells us that. We know whether someone is passed from death into life by their actions. But James isn't worrying about, look, you need to pay attention to Joe Christian behind you. He's talking about you particular. So that's the context. 23 and 24 rules us to that point. That we have to be thinking of this of ourselves rather than someone else sitting around us. Let us look using James' analogy or his simile this morning in verse 23. Let us look in the mirror. And when you look, you need to see if you're bridling your tongue or not. Because if you're not, James says in verse 26... You're deceiving yourselves. And our religion is vain. Well, it would be a good idea then to know what it means to bridle your tongue. What does this mean? What does it mean to bridle your tongue? Does he mean literally children to go get the horse's bridle and with the bits and you stick it in your mouth and hopefully that's going to take care of their problems? No, that's not what he means. You would look pretty funny coming to church next week with a horse's bridle or a bit in your mouth, wouldn't you? I don't even think your mother would even allow you out of the house with that kind of apparatus on, would she? she? She'd think you're being silly. Well, I was obeying the pastor. Didn't you hear him last week tell me to bridle my tongue? Well, children, you know that's not what we're talking about, is it? When he speaks of bridling here, he simply means to control it. Because what do you do with a bridle on a horse? Isn't that given to you to control the horse? To make him go to the left? To make him go to the right? To pull him up? To stop? And I suppose to make him giddy up? I'm not a horse uh, expert. I'm not good up on horseology. But I think that's the general idea, isn't it? You put the bit and the bridle on the horse around his nose, the bit in the mouth, so you could guide him, you could control him. And so this is what he means here: if you seem to be religious, if you think you're a religious man or a religious woman or a religious boy and girl, but if you don't control your tongue, you've deceived yourself, and your religion is in vain. doesn't matter about the other marks of grace or not. If you have an unbridled tongue, if your tongue is not under control, then your religion is in vain. Now, let me say what it doesn't mean here this morning. It doesn't mean you say nothing. That's how some people think they bridle their tongue. Well, I just won't say anything. I just won't say nothing when I get around, folks. And they think they have fulfilled this duty of bridling their tongue. That is not what that means. Because we know from the Word of God, there are duties which speak of the speech, doesn't it? And how that we are to speak a word in due season. How we are to comfort others and how give aid and such as that. So, he's not saying here, zip it up and you're a saved man. No. What he says here is, is that your tongue is controlled. You make it say the things that it ought to say and you make it not say the things that it should not say. You see, that's a controlled or a vital tongue. Not saying anything isn't what he means here. Now, that would be the temptation, I admit. And fewer words would be very helpful. But it doesn't mean no speech whatsoever. But he's speaking of it in the sense of having a control or a governor upon the tongue. Now, James is going to deal more fully with this in chapter 3, so we're going to save all of that for chapter 3. But the Scripture says in verse 2, For in many things we offend all, if any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man, and able also to bridle the whole body. And then he goes into the analogy, the illustration of the bit in the horse's mouth. So, he's going to spend chapter 3 in the main dealing with the tongue. Now, in actuality, this isn't the first time he's spoken of the tongue, has he? Remember back in verse 19? What does he say? Those three quick jabs in his boxing around there. What does he say? Slow to speak. So, this isn't the first time that he has anything to do with the tongue. The government of the tongue. It's already been mentioned already. But just to give you some other verses and ideas of this, Proverbs 10, 19, I'm just going to give you the verses and I'll give you the reference so you can write them down if you're doing that. But listen to the verse. In the multitude of words there woneth not sin, but he that refraineth his lips is wise. Now here we do see there are times to keep them shut. But that isn't all that Proverbs tells us. Bow down thine ear, he says in Proverbs 22, verse 17. Hear the words of the wise. Apply thine heart unto knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if thou keep them within thee. They shall be withal be fitted in thy lips. You were able to speak those things. You see. It's just not what I ain't going to say anything. It's, I've got my tongue under control by the knowledge that I have. It's true. Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth the soul from troubles. And how many times have we been troublous because we've kept our tongues where it belongs? But we can be just as guilty of sin of... Co- Omission, but not saying the things we ought to say. Again, Proverbs 30, verse 32. If thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself, or if thou hast thought evil, lay thy hand upon thy mouth. Psalm thirty-four, ten, or excuse me, 34, 12 and 13. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many th- days that he may see good? Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. You've got a hold of your tongue. Not little? Eh? Not that you're holding on to it, but that you're controlling it. Again, just in the New Testament sense, we see it for instance, in Ephesians four, uh, I'll turn there very quickly. He tells us in Ephesians four and verse 29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Now, that's the mortifying of it. But that which is good to the use of edifying. There's the positive of it. So you're not just to be quiet. You're to use your speech so that it will minister grace, he says in verse 29, unto the hearers. Again, we are to mortify. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. So there is the control of not saying things and there is the control of saying things again that would be proper to us at the right time and at the right place. And brethren, it takes the wisdom of Solomon at times to do that, doesn't it? Most of us, whatever our foot size is, that's about the size of our mouth a lot of times, isn't it? I wear a ten and a half and that's about the size of my mouth because I can get my foot in there really well. Some of us are prone like that, aren't we? We have to be careful. We have to be able to govern that. And this is the point of true religion, he says. A vain religion doesn't. He tells us again, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. The don't and the do. So if such a man cannot and does not bridle his tongue, both in the negative and in the positive aspect of that, the Bible says here very plainly, he's deceiving himself and this man's religion is vain. So not only are you fooling yourself, in reality, your religion, your worship, your service, the so-called reverence you have that you've convinced yourself about is vain worthless well that's for the first heading now let's go on to the second heading and that is then the nature of pure religion well we don't have to guess he tells us again on this now again let's be careful here he's not saying these are only the two but he just gives us some. Pure religion, undefiled before God and the Father is this. Now, we know it's not, if you can't keep your bridle tongue, but it's tongue bridle. But let's go now for the next. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. So, now we see two points. Now, again, let's go back to just what we said about verse 26. This is dealing with individuals. Let's all think about, aha, we got him now. He ought to be able to see that he's not a religious man because he doesn't do these things. I'm not worried about that. I'm worried about you individually. And you need to be worried about you individually. Let me take care of the rest of the folks. And you worry about yourself this morning. Where do you find yourself in these things? Well, there are two points to this heading about the nature of pure religion. He tells us very plainly The first is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. Now, whether he means here the exact wording or he's speaking of it here in a broad sense, that is, just being pitiful, having love or compassion or whether he's meaning that in a broad sense, and he's just giving us some specifics to go by, the point of the matter, it remains the same, doesn't it? It's all to be done. We may wonder, brethren, if we have not love and compassion and pity, which does not, which moves, let me write, say that again. If we have not love and compassion and pity, which moves us to action, then we may wonder whether we have true religion or not. Whether we're dealing with widows and and orphans or whether we take it in its broadest sense. As John does in 1 John, loving the brethren, which isn't, oh, I love you, though it's good to say, but showing that love and demonstration and in action. So, either way, we still are to do these things. Now, we all know what it means to... Uh, be fatherless, don't we? It means to not have a father. You may know someone whose father has left or he's died. Well, the Scripture says here, one of the things that demonstrates pure religion and undefiled is that they, you have concern for them. In fact, he uses the word visit here. And we know what it means to be a widow. It means not to have a husband. And what are we to do? Well, basically, is that we're to show them to, to be pitiful towards them. In other words, our hearts, brethren, ought to be moved by them and to such an extent that we even look to them. In fact, notice the phrase here, to visit the fatherless. I'm going to read you here from a fellow. He says it better than I do, so I'm going to read it this way. So, appreciate what he says. I couldn't even tell you the fellow's name. I think it was Adam. Uh, Not the first one, but another one. Uh, It says here, The duty specified is that of visiting these parties, which include every kind of friendly office, counsel, aid, defense, soothing their sorrows, supplying their wants, vindicating their rights. But the term has a more definite meaning, and it is intended, we doubt not, to convey an important lesson. We are not merely to render them assistance, to exert ourselves in their, at their behalf at a distance. We are not to be satisfied with acting through a substitute, a friend, a minister, a missionary, an agent of some religious charity, uh, charitable society. We are to come into contact with them, to go to them in person. We are to enter their dwellings, let them see and look, word and action, the kind feelings by which we are emanated moved. How about that? That's what true religion is. That's what he says. I, I mean I can't read it any other way, whether we do it or not. That's just what he says it is. Well, the second thing, I'll let you think on that. The second thing is to keep himself unspotted from the world. Probably this one's uh, maybe a little easier. It's easy to not drink, smoke, and cuss. Hang around those that do. That's kind of how most people look at the last part of verse 27. Keeping himself from uh, being unspotted from the world. I don't do these, what I consider serious sins, you know. But it's more than that, isn't it? In this point, we're reminded that as Christians, that is, as being true worshipers, true servers, true reverencers of God, the Father, notice in verse 27, then we must be living in strict purity. To fool ourselves into thinking we can be like the world and then be like Christ is too, it's just, it doesn't match. But how many try to do that? Brethren, it is our job, it's our duty before God not to be conformed to the things of this world. Now, it's true, we live in the world, but it is not our place to be like the world. In its lust, in its coveting, and in its pride. You see, that's what he's talking about there. How do I know that? Well, flip over to 1 John chapter 2. We're often wondering, well, what does it mean not to be like the world? What does it mean not to be unspotted with the world? Here it is, chapter is. 1 John 2, verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is basically what James is telling us here, isn't it? Well, what is it then to love the world? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. We can sum it up very easily and say, well, it's anything that is contrary to the will of God, the Word of God. That's what it means to be spotted by the world. It's not your favorite pet sins that you think everyone else has got to conform to or they're not true Christians. No, my brethren, it's sin, period. Anything that is contrary to the will of God. Because that's what the world's like. You see, this is what we were delivered from, remember? We were not to walk. We once, one time, we walked according to the course of this world. There was no difference in us and them. And that's what he's saying here. You can't be like them. You can't have their lusts. You can't be coveting like them. And you can't be proud like them. That's the summation of... Now, there's more to it, but that's the summation of what it means to be like the world. It's being conformed in what they think rather than what God thinks. And true religion is this, to keep yourself unspotted from the world. James, again, is going to deal with this, so we won't deal so much with it now. But notice what he says in chapter 4, verse 4. Listen to the strong language. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be the friend, uh, a friend of the world is the enemy of God. It's either you are or you're not. The danger then of playing with the world, even coming close to it, is dangerous. Again, we see the exhortation in Romans 12. And verses 1 and 2. And again, the context of Romans 12 is that he has just got through speaking of all these great. And wonderful doctrines of, of deliverance, of justification and sanctification that is ours through the, the, through the work of Christ. And so he bases, he, he prays and, and beseeches them in verse 12, or chapter 12 and verse 1, that by the mercies of God, that you be present, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Worship religion and be not conformed to this world. But rather, he says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now get this you cannot go to the world to find that out. And what folks often do is they take the stuff of the world and that's what becomes their judging meter for everything. It's their philosophy. It's what the world thinks. Paul says, don't be transformed by that stuff. you be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that what? You'll know what is the acceptable will of God. The world cannot do that. The lust of the eye and the pride of man cannot bring that. And he says this is true religion. Now, notice back in our text again, James puts these two things together. He doesn't just say, well, you're a good one on working with the fatherless and the widows. You're okay. Or, wait a minute. Boy, you are the most strictest fellow I've ever seen. You don't do anything that looks like what the world does. But you never visit. You're as big a hypocrite as the fellow who lives in adultery. You see, it's both. He it puts the and there. And to keep himself, he says. So it's both. Not just one. Well, what can we say in all this? Well, first of all, is James saying this is all there is to the Christian walk? Keeping your tongue, uh, visiting your next door neighbor who may be a widow, or and keeping yourself unspotted. Is that the sum totality of the Christian walk? No. In fact, James has already, hasn't he already been dealing out that there are certain things already that he's pointed out, tribulation and trial, he says is part of the Christian walk. Isn't it? He talks about faith, prayer, that's part of the Christian walk. Talks about being uh, the man who endures or perseverance in the times of tribulation and trial and adversities. That man is blessed. So that's part of worshiping God and serving God and honoring God. He's talked about the Word of God being born again. Who could ever enter into a religious world in a true sense without the new birth? I would say that's pretty important. So he's not saying here these are the only things. But what he is doing here is giving us real examples that we need to check ourselves by. Secondly, let us not think that a lifeless, dead faith is true religion. In fact, far from it. James is illustrating here that true faith will possess these things. In fact, it's the only true faith that can even produce these things about us. Thirdly, let me assure you, true life begins in God, in Christ. Again, let's don't forget verse 18 there. You'll never enter into the, the makings of true Christianity apart from the new birth. But let me say this. If you do not have these marks about you this morning, you need to be born again. Don't fool yourself. Don't be the man who's deceived. If you can't bridle your tongue, show compassion, and keep yourself holy, there's definitely something wrong in your walk. But all those who have this, these things, in some measure, have saving faith. Fourthly, you ever noticed, you know, actually I think James only uses the Lord's name twice. And I don't mean out of a transgression. But he uses Jesus' name only twice, I think twice in this whole epistle. He uses it in verse 1 of chapter 1, the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses it again in chapter 2, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he makes reference of the Lord returning. And that's all you see. I think, in regards to Jesus Christ. How about that? Well, that's true. You can count them up if you like and look. But have you ever noticed, though, how Christ-like all these things are that He talks about? Is not Jesus Christ... As the Old Testament tells us, a father to the fatherless. Is he not a husband to the widow? He's promised that. I will be a father to the fatherless. I will be a husband to the widow. That's in the person of Christ, is it not? Did he not come into this world speaking words of peace? Speaking words in due season like none other? is it not said of him that all bear witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth? Doesn't the Scripture say that about our Lord Jesus? Is he not, the uh, as the Scripture says, in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin? Was he not holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners? So do we not then have in him the greatest example of all these things. So my point of all this, let's look to Him and let us follow Him then in these things. What a better example could you find? Except that which is in Christ. And then lastly, let me give this kind of a warning, uh, more of a... Ca- I think word warning might be a little stern, but how about the word Caution. Let me give you a caution about all that we've said this morning. If you'll notice in your Bibles, verses 26 and 27, there is no meter beside it. Do you see one? Look down at the text. Can do me the pleasure of looking there, if you would. Obey oh, me. Do you see a meter there? Does he say... How many times you bridle your tongue and then it's okay? Does he say how many times you go visit that fatherless and the widow? Ten times it all's well? Does he give the depth or the measure of how pure you are? He doesn't, does he? Well, my point of that, since there's no measurement given, Or how much or how often in these things let us not be the judge in others of these matters, but rather let us judge ourselves in these things. See, the measurement is not given, is it? And our pride and our self-righteousness and that innate Phariseeism we may have about us, we would begin to put numbers there. And measurements, wouldn't we? Maybe not for ourselves, but we certainly would for that fellow sitting beside me, or the one in front of me, or the one behind me. You see, that's what I'm trying to keep us from this morning. Is you becoming someone else's judge here today. And all wisdom here that he didn't give us any kind of measurement to go by. So, there's a word of caution to you. Judge yourself in these matters rather than judging someone else.